Uh, pastor's message this morning is taken from the book of Romans, chapter 15, verses 14 through 21, and the title is The Passion of Paul. And I myself also am persuaded of you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. Nevertheless, brethren, I have written the more boldly unto you in some sort as putting you in mind because of the grace that is given to me of God, that I should be the minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering the gospel to God, of God, that the that offering up of the Gentiles might be acceptable, being sanctified by the Holy Ghost. I have, therefore, whereof I may glory through Jesus Christ in those things which pertain to God. For I will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ hath not wrought by me to make the Gentiles obedient by the word and deed through mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Holy Spirit of God. So that from Jerusalem and round about under Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Yea, so have I strived to preach the gospel. Not where Christ was named, lest I should build upon another's foundation, but as it is written, to whom he was not spoken of, they shall see, and they shall have not heard, understand. Amen. Every time there's a holiday, um, I'm sort of thrown through a loop as to what I should preach on. I prepared this sermon two weeks ago, to, to preach last week, and then we have Thanksgiving in front of us, and I thought, well, what do I do? Do I change my sermon and, and preach a Thanksgiving sermon? And then I thought to myself, and this you might think is a totally unrelated question, as we were singing this song, My Heart is Filled with Thankfulness, is why aren't there more Thanksgiving hymns that, that center around the holiday of Thanksgiving? And and the answer to that is that everything we do every week is really about worship and praise and thanksgiving. And so it got me thinking, if that's true, cannot we find that in the text that I was already planning to preach last week? So some of you are going to say, where's our Thanksgiving sermon? Here it is. It's in Romans 15, 14 through 21. But it's not just there. And in fact, in the mercy of God and in the providence of God, it is throughout the book of Romans. If you go back to verse 13 of Romans 15, what do we read there? But a prayer, sort of outburst of prayer, a benediction. In fact, many people think, well, maybe that's a good time that the, the epistle should end because Paul at this point is just about wrapped up his teaching in this epistle. Most of his teaching is completed at this point. Everything else is sort of implied or for us and the church to gain a, a zeal for ministry ongoing, a faithfulness for what we ought to do from there. But most of the teaching, most of the groundwork, most of the theology and doctrine that Romans is famous for is complete. And so Paul, when he says in verse 13 and 15, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope, would be a very good end to this epistle. That sort of outburst of benedictory prayer, though, is not new in this epistle, is it? Neither is praise. 
You see, Paul isn't writing Romans as a solitary, statuesque figure, meaning he has life within him. He has spiritual life within him. He has the Holy Spirit within him, and he is zealous for what he is writing about. And so we often get in this epistle, if we would go back to the end of chapter 11, what do we read there? This monument of praise to God. At the end of a portion of scripture, chapter 9 through 11, which has some of the greatest theologians baffled and their minds are up and down, and even in chapter 11, I think that's the point of chapter 11, is to put us exactly where Paul ends the chapter. You're not going to figure out this God. He's too great for us to figure out. We're not going to go up to the heavens and pull him down and sit him down in front of us and counsel him regarding what his plan is. We're not going to figure him out. But that's why he is worthy of praise, because he's God. And so Paul says there, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid from? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. And then if we go back to chapter 9, Paul is just opening a very difficult discourse because he's already taught about the gospel and all of its benefits that's come to sinners, both Jews and Gentiles. And, and, and he's ended chapter 8, which we'll read there with Again, an edifying exhortation, a word of security because of the gospel for all the saints. So chapter 9, he goes and he points this out that it's not because of who you are through your lineage, your blood lineage, that God accepts you. He goes and he argues this very difficult point for the Jews that it's not because you're children of Abraham according to the flesh that you are children of Abraham. That's a hard word to the Jews. But even there in verse 5, look what he comes out to. To the Jews, to them belong the patriarchs from their race according to the flesh. Listen to this. He, he just breaks out into this. Is the Christ, the Messiah, who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. But he's not done. He just has life inside of him. He has spiritual life. He has a zeal for the gospel. So what I want you to see is that in Romans... You have this gospel, which is a living and abiding truth, and it's within this man who has a calling and ascending and a zeal for it, and he's preaching it throughout this epistle, and he gets carried away with praise and with benediction constantly. But that's not the end, right? If we go back to chapter 8, what does he do there? There he incites us. He excites us with the security of the place and the position of the love of God through Jesus Christ for us. Verse 31, what shall we say to these things? I believe that means all of these things beginning in chapter 3, probably maybe in verse 22, 23, through to where he is now. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And he's encouraging the saints. He who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall, bring us, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who 
indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The short answer is nothing. This is a word in the middle of a doctrinal exhortation, right before chapters 9 through 11, the horror of many churches and pastors, even to this day. I, I think they're wonderful. Many pastors won't even touch them. In these things we are more than conquerors through him, to, him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If that kind of life, if that kind of truth lives in you, you're not going to be able to contain yourself when you're writing an epistle and a letter that's all about these things. But what about our weaknesses? What about our frailty? What about the sinfulness of our abiding nature, that fleshly nature that Paul speaks so much about? What about our own ongoing weakness, even though we're in Christ? Where do we look for? We can't look in ourselves. He says in chapter 7, wretched man that I am who shall deliver me from this body of death. And as I argued then, I believe he's speaking as a regenerate believer here. What's his answer? His answer is, in one sense, theological. It's an assurance, and it's also, in another sense, praise. It's assurance. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh. I serve the law of sin. But Christ is the means of his hope. That's why in our verse 13 of chapter 15, where we actually were and are now, his prayer is that we be filled with hope, the God of hope. You see, that passion, that zeal, that love that Paul had for Christ and for the gospel is what brings us to our text today. Worship is what brings us to our text today. Thanksgiving is what brings us to our text. We cannot separate the worship of Paul from the apostle of duty, his passion, his fulfillment of his office and ministry. First, this morning, in our text, if you go to 15, chapter 15, verse 14, Paul defends his body of work here. He defends it. This is sort of an apology, an apology for writing. And it's a purposeful letter that he's written, and he's not writing it to babies, he says, in verses 14 through 17. Verse 14, he says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Matthew Henry was right that he said these verses form an apology. The apostle is defending his writing to this church. And his first defense is not that it was written from a place of disappointment in their understanding of the gospel. There might be, as we read this, wow, these people really unlearned. Look how much detail he goes to. But then really the answer is, no, they must have known their stuff. Romans is not a simple letter, is it? It's not a simplistic letter by any means. And he tells them, he says, I am satisfied 
about you. What an encouragement this must have been to them to read at this point. You know, they, they may have taken this letter in a new, many numerous ways. Paul has never perhaps met these, pers- these people in person. We do believe he's known some of them, but, but many of them, he's never been to Rome. He's heard about them, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But, but how will they receive this writing? And he wants him to, them to know he is not disappointed with them. This is not a letter with all of the knowledge of the gospel and the theology contained in it that is written for those he is disappointed in. And here is why. You yourselves are full of goodness, he says, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. This is an epistle that has been written for those who can eat the meat, who can digest it. Remember when he writes to the Corinth, church at Corinth? I should be able to write to you food. Like this. But instead, I'm giving you milk still. I'm still correcting you. I'm still turning you over and, and, and disciplining you. That's a bad way to put that. But in a sense, that's how he's writing to them. Like babies, like children. That's not how he's writing to this church. This is a mature epistle written to mature believers. That phrase, filled with knowledge, should be familiar to us. That means there's something underneath this phrase that is very important. And in that love chapter, Paul says something about those who are full of knowledge but don't have love. Verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 13 If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. If I have faith so as to remove mountains, but I have love, but not have love, I not have love, I am nothing. And so entailed with this goodness that he says that they have and all knowledge that they have must be that they were a loving church. They were a full church. They weren't just mature in what they knew. They were actually acting in Agreement with the gospel that they profess to believe. What a weight. What a, what a testimony they are then in the world. In fact, what they look like is their Lord. And this clarifies why Paul is able, as I said, to write such a theologically weighty letter to them. And one question arises why Paul would write so much and so boldly to a church that knew so much. And he says in verse 15, he answers that question, if they know so much. He says, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Now this is something that we see throughout scripture. We need reminding. Every one of us. You know, we sang that song, My Heart is Filled with Thankfulness. This year, I think maybe the last year and a half, I've been sick more than I've probably ever been sick that I can remember. And I, this past little episode I had, there were moments when I was just angry. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't depressed as much as I was angry. Like I could have removed some walls in our nice house. <laughs> I was sick of being inside. 
I was sick of feeling bad. I was sick of missing preaching. I was sick of everything. And I was not in a good place. And I needed reminders. We need reminding. And I picked up a Isaiah devotional translation. Alec Matir. I've been corrected recently by how to say his name, which is a helpful thing. And he talks about the God of our salvation. You see, we have this foundation that we need to be brought back to all the time. It's that rock that's with us all the time. It's that doctrine of justification. It's that doctrine of our depravity. It's our doctrine that I don't deserve to feel better by my own righteousness. Boy, we can get in a funk really quickly if we start looking at other people and say, why can't I be like them and have the health of them or have the intelligence of them or the strength of them or whatever we desire, we lack, and we look around us and they have it and I don't. Why? But when we understand our sinfulness and what that deserves, what, what that renders us before a holy God, Isaiah crying out, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. I'm a man of unclean eyes. I'm a man of unclean hands and legs and feet and heart. And God in his mercy has cleansed us. We need to be reminded of these things, that we're justified not because of our own doing, but by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that justification means nothing can separate us from the love of God. That means even in our weaknesses, in our flesh, Christ is our hope. When we're being tempted above which we are able, which is in our flesh, the way of escape is in Christ. It's in the Holy Spirit, that abiding influence of righteousness. And we need these reminders, just as they did. Psalm 105, 5 says, Remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he under, uttered. In the Old Testament, it's, it's replete. It's everywhere. Remember what God has done for you. You know what we fail to do if we, if we cease remembering we won't be thankful. We won't be. We'll be entitled. We'll feel entitled to feel good. To get what we want. In fact, we'll become idolaters. When you're not thankful, you become an idolater. You seek after all these other ends except for God, besides God. God, if you just make me healthy again, then I'll serve you. Well, that end has become your God, not him. These things for us are absolutely essential. And he warns us in Revelation. He warns the church. Remember from where you have fallen, repent. Even when we come to a place where we are in sin, we need to be reminded from Scripture so that we'll be repentant and do what's right.
Well, the question also arises, how did Paul know of this church he's never been to? And the first answer is, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 8, you don't have to, I'll read it. He says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Now, that relates very closely with what we just read about his knowledge of their being full of goodness, all knowledge, wisdom, what a testimony. You know, as I read this and as I was studying this, I was praying for our church. You know, there's, there's nothing on the outside of our church. We can have a sign up one day a week. We, we're not a church that has anything mega about it, <laughs> if I could say that. We do have these lights and a, and a camera in the back. But there's nothing important in the world's eyes in the way that we, we do anything here. And I'm okay with that. But I'm not okay with us just towing the status quo line. Just showing up. Just sitting on the bench. I want us to be a church full of goodness. Knowledge. Love, unity, patience, the fruits of the Spirit. I want us to be a church like this church that can be known not because of any of these external things that churches are known for these days. I'm never going to be the cool pastor, I'm not even the cool dad. But I want to be godly. And I hope you do too. And I, and I trust you do. And I know God is at work in you to make this sort of testimony of us for his glory. He knew of this church. He knew about them because they, their faith was proclaimed in all the world. This is a testament to Christ. You, you see, when the church has a good rapport when they have a when there's a good word that goes out from a church christ is known i'm reading a book right now and there's a lot in this book i don't agree with in the basis of the book and what it's arguing for but some of the things that i read in this book about the history of sin in the church it takes your breath away and not just because of the awful atrocities that so many professing Christs have done and been okay with in the past, even in this country. Not merely because of that. But who are we representing? Who do we represent in this world? that God would give us this testimony, I pray. His second defense regards his calling. But on some points I have written to you very boldly, verse 15, by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So he's saying... The second defense that I have for writing to you is it's my calling. This is what God has called me to do. 
There are three things he says about his calling. First, God's grace was given to him for that purpose. This is why he was just reminding them so boldly, he says, with authority. That's what that means. You know, the apostles' writings were very different from any of the early church writers, the fathers. Even Clement, the very early uh, church father, very different. They were authoritative, bold in the way that they called upon the saints to listen to them. And the grace of God, Paul says, was upon him for that purpose. The grace of God was upon Paul so that he would minister, he says, of Christ to the Gentiles. He would be bold in doing so. Let me say something to us these days. Don't ever think that the gospel ministry is meant to make you feel good. Merely. It is meant to encourage and edify the saints. And it should be done out of love and compassion and sincerity and truth and not from a domineering or a hateful or a hurtful spirit. And yet, it needs to be done with boldness. And boldness agrees with grace here. Do you understand? We need to hear, you out there need to hear corrections sometimes. You need to hear theology that doesn't comport with your own sometimes because it's biblical and it corrects and it admonishes. We need to be taught and we need to be, how do I say this, not scolded. We need to be corrected. We need to be brought out of a state of sleeping to a state of zeal again sometimes by the preaching, by the doctrine, by the truth of God's word. Arise, sleeper. And that's grace. When you hear that, if you hear that from me, you should. I hope you know it's because of the grace of God that you're hearing that. Now, people do a disservice to that sort of thing by putting their own egos and their own pride in the way. But that our, the ministry of this church, the preaching and teaching ministry of this church would follow this pattern of the apostle is my prayer. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, he says, is why the grace of God was upon him. Therefore, he's telling them, you Gentiles in this church at Rome, hear me this Jewish apostle, I was sent to you. That's his purpose here. Second, his ministry, his calling was a priestly service of the gospel. Now there's been a, a lot of disagreement as to what he means by this. Rome would, uh, in fact, use this as a basis to set up their priestly sacred office of sacred orders. There's priestly orders. And I don't agree with that. I don't think that's at all what Paul is trying to state here in the way that he writes to them about this priestly service of the gospel. Paul is concerned as he closes this epistle that the church of Rome do two things, essentially. One, receive the truth of the letter. Listen to what I've written to you. Second, prepare to receive him and to send him to Spain. He's not setting up a hierarchical priestly system with this 
letter. That's not what his goal is. In fact, Paul explains what he means by this idea of a priestly service of the gospel when he says, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. The priestly service of the gospel, here is my view of what it means. It means Paul is mediating the gospel of God through his writing, through his preaching ministry that is calling to Gentile region, to Gentiles in various regions. So through God's calling, he's going out and he's preaching the gospel. And that mediation of the gospel is going to the Gentiles. That is the priestly service of the gospel. He's mediating it. Do you see that? The fruit that abounds to that ministry is summarized in this, this uh, sentence or this phrase, the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That's the fruit of that priestly service. He's not setting up a priestly order here. He's saying, my calling to proclaim Christ in the gospel to you is my ministry, my priestly service, and you're the fruit of it. You're the acceptable fruit. One that God accepts, the offering that God accepts sanctified by the Spirit. In summary, due to having heard of the mature faith of these believers in Rome and because of his calling as a preacher of the gospel, he writes to them by way of reminder such that they persevere in faith and sanctification by the power of the Holy Spirit in accordance with this gospel. He, as an apostle, has the authority to preach. In other words, just very basic and, and simply, Listen to me. Be reminded by what I'm telling you. And may God increase the work he's doing in you. Second, the proper place of praise. 17 through 19. The rest should go fairly quick here. He says in verse 17, In Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud, to boast or glory. That's the same word boast that we see in chapter 3, and we'll go there a little bit, of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. Now, verse 17 might sound very unpauline to your ears. Do you hear what he says? I have reason to be proud of my work for God. Do you ever hear anything so unpauline in your life? than that? That can't be. That must have been an editor that put that in. Except for that, if you'll notice, he bookends before that, he bookends actually two qualifications, one before and one afterwards by that statement he's just made. He says first, in Christ Jesus. (laughs) That's an important qualification. He's saying there, in Christ, that is by Christ, that is through him, in his strength, by his means, the grace of God given to me, you could say, in Christ here. And then he says, verse 18, I will not, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed. Now, 
Paul has already defended the writing of his letter. Now he prepares the church for both his desire to rival in Rome and also his continual missionary endeavors to Spain. Here he's saying to them, I've been effectual. I've been successful. You know, that's, he's sort of writing a resume at this point. Isn't that strange that you would think of Paul having to write a resume? He's sort of saying, you should receive me because God works through me. (laughs) And by the way, we should receive him because God was working through him. But this is his argument. He is not saying to them, look at all the places I've been to and failed. (laughs) Oh man, nothing good has come from my ministry. But receive me, because I want to come to you, and then I want you to send me to Spain. That's coming down later. I'm just in, that's, that's where he's going here. You see, he's telling them, God has worked through me, through Christ, and what I've accomplished, I am proud of it, because Christ has accomplished it through me. So he's not saying, I'm proud of myself, my own strength, my own ability, my own wisdom, my own intelligence, my own anything. He's saying, I'm proud of the work that I've done because God has done the work through me. And it's been successful. And it was successful. It was very successful. For us today, we're not receiving Paul and sending him except for in the word of God. In the word, the word of God has been written by the inspired apostle for us to keep receiving him and sending him, as it were. And it's a successful word. It's a successful ministry to this day. Here we are, I always remind us, we are on the opposite side of the globe from Jerusalem, from Israel, preaching this successful word. The gates of hell won't prevail against this word. God in Christ is still sending his word. It's still accomplishing the things that he has for it. Don't look out as as hard as it is, and I confess it's hard for me. Don't look out there and say, woe is me. We are undone by what we're experiencing in the world. We are not overcome by the world. We are the church of Christ, and we have the word of God that will not fail. It cannot fail. He says, by the power of signs and wonders, verse 19, by the power of the Spirit of God. He's come to them this way. He's fulfilled his ministry in word and in deed, and in doing so, he also has power of signs and wonders and power of the Spirit of God that's adjoined his ministry. He has been a success. Now, these refer to these charismatic gifts that were present for the grounding of the church and the apostles, the authority of the apostles. What do I mean by that? In 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul there says, the signs of a true apostle. There he's arguing very similarly to what he's doing now here. 
in 2 Corinthians, he's arguing that these super apostles, these false apostles, are not true apostles. One of his arguments, he says, is that we came to you, I came to you, with true signs, signs of a true apostle. And he says, they were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. These are charismatic gifts. These are those gifts that we see poured out on the church in Acts chapter 2. These are the gifts of healing and tongues and such things that Christians love to argue about these days. And I think we should still argue about them, oftentimes with more grace than we do. But here is the point of Paul in this text and in the text of 2 Corinthians 13. These were signs to establish the church in our authority so that you would know that we have the authority of God upon us. God has given us these supernatural signs. That's his argument. And now he's saying to the church at Rome the same thing he said to the church at Corinth. You've seen them. You've heard of them. You know them. They accompany our ministry. And the church in our ministry is proven to be true because of these signs. Again, he's just encouraging them that his ministry is one that is true, one that he's been called to by Christ and is empowered by the Holy Spirit so as to receive him. So that from Jerusalem and all the way out around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. Jerusalem was over a thousand miles away from Illyricum, which was somewhere east in Macedonia. That's a long way to go. When you're traveling by boat and camel routes or whatever way he was traveling, that's a long way. We don't like to travel to the North Shore, you know, or to the West. I mean, we love the North Shore, but it takes a whole week of planning to, to travel 30 miles with a car over here. If you spend any time on Kauai, you know how lazy we get when it comes to driving around on this little rock. He's traveling around thousands of miles. Think of that. One missionary journey, two missionary journeys, three. At this point in his Christian walk in his ministry, he's ministering for 20 years at this point. How many shipwrecks? How many beatings? How many imprisonments? How many of those things have happened already? And he's not slowing down. He's not slowing down. He says here, it's his ambition to preach Christ. He says in another place, woe is me if I don't preach Christ. But it's not just his ambition to preach Christ. He says, I'm called so as to preach him to ears that have never heard him before. You see, that's, we have different callings. Now, some pastors will fall into, I think, a snare, and they'll say, let's be all like Paul. We can be like Paul in certain ways that I hope to give you an application but Paul is particular in his calling. I am not called to be an itinerant evangelist. I'm called to be a pastor of this congregation, of you. Paul was moving around, and he couldn't stop but to move around. That's what his calling was, to go preach where Christ has not been named. By the way, in one application, that is still the church's calling. It may not be my calling particularly. It was Pastor Arza Brown's calling 
at one point, point in his ministry to come to Hawaii and plant a church. This church, what is it, 56 years now? No, this November? That, that calling is for the church continually. It's still our calling. But we are losing our zeal for it. Why are we losing our zeal for that calling? I pray this church will not lose its zeal for the calling of the spread of the gospel to unreached peoples around the world. I believe this entire closing portion of Romans is meant to induce God's people first to reverence for what he has written, for what has come before it in the, in the text. What we're reading now is for us to look back at Romans and to say, that is the word of God. That is the gospel. That is the power of God for salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. That is our life. That is our meat. That is our stability. That is our security. That is our calling. That is our ambition. That is our direction. To look back and to be in awe of what God has done to give us his word, to give us the clarity of these doctrines, the truth of them, to equip and prepare the church then, secondly, then for ongoing labors. For what's before us. The calling that we still have to preach the gospel to every creature. For this to happen, we must see the calling and the power of the calling in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit upon the apostle. And we must have and pray for that same zeal. You see, I didn't just bring up those points at the beginning, Paul's praise, his benediction, his prayers for the saints. I didn't just bring that up just to fit it in the slot of Thanksgiving preaching. How do you maintain the zeal of God for Christ? The calling, the faithfulness, over years and years and years of toil and difficulty and remain steadfast and remain going forward and not being distracted and not being set aside and not being lazy and not being in, entitled to all the comforts that this world affords us. You live with the same sort of zeal that Paul has as he's writing this. When you think about the gospel, you can't help but say, who can know the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given to him a gift that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. Who has given him counsel? Who has taught him anything? You, you see, when we come back to these things and we're in awe of them, then we're in a place to be reestablished for our calling. When we're reminded of the love of God in Christ Jesus, we are reminded that we can suffer with Christ. And we will reign with Christ when we do.
that nothing in this world can separate us from the love of God, we are going to be emboldened then to push through resistance, to push through a culture that says we don't want to hear what you have to say. Not about politics per se, but about this gospel. Repent. Believe. Receive this mercy that God has given through his son. Don't be deterred. Well, how can we not be deterred? We won't be deterred when it's in the fabric of our being, like it is to Paul. When Thanksgiving just oozes out in the middle of doctrine, in the middle of theology, in the middle of it, that gives him the reason, the impulse to praise God, to pray for the saints, to announce benedictions so that you will find in God all you need to be faithful in what he's called you to. You see, these things cannot be separated. A pox on all of those people who say doctrine divides, right? But doctrine doesn't just fill our heads. It fills our soul if it's true. We will praise God. We'll worship him. We'll be zealous for God. We'll move. We'll go on. The gospel will be applied through self-sacrifice and love towards our neighbor. When the gospel is at root, and it'll look a lot like this letter. It'll look a lot like this apostle. Not necessarily that every one of you will have his ministry, but the church will look like this. I thought of this way of describing it. The church should look like both Mary and Martha. <laughs> you know, I grew up thinking, oh, you don't want to be like Martha. She's just doing all this. Most of the Christians I knew then were Marthas and not Marys. You want to sit, though, and you want to hear, and you just want to absorb all this stuff. We're not merely Marthas, though. We're Martha and Mary, right? We're sitting at the feet of our Lord. We're worshiping, and that worship abounds in fruit. It works. Here's the thought for Thanksgiving, and then I'll pray. What is your gratitude? Are you thankful? What does your gratitude for the gospel of Christ and his calling upon you induce you to do in accordance with God's grace in Christ Jesus? Let's pray. Our Father, we want to be true with our theology and our doctrine. We want to have a rich and full and meaty doctrine and theology. We want to be feeding on the meat of the word. We want to be brought back to it again and again and reminded of it. We want to come to the table, the Lord's Supper, and we want to receive Christ and all that the scriptures reveal about him by faith and yet that must change us it must remain in us to encourage us to go on to fulfill the calling in this world for this little time we have on it to fulfill that calling for your glory so that thanksgiving will abound to worship and service knowing that it is not in vain in the Lord.
We pray this in Christ's name, amen.